Hello, everyone, and welcome back to a Serendipitous Logic podcast. So this is episode 13. It is a special episode because we're doing it right at the end of 2015, which, as we know, has been a very exciting and eventful year. There's been a lot of stuff going on in, in Ontario health and medical politics. So with me today, I am very fortunate to have Dr. Nadia Alam, who has um, been quite actively involved in medical politics, and we'll get into, into that uh, shortly. But Nadia, did, did you just want to say hi and introduce yourself and say where you practice and where you're from? Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Jason Perfetto, for having me on the show. Um, please just call me Nadia. And, uh, and I guess just a bit about myself. I'm a small town family doctor and a GP anesthesiologist who works in the hospital and in the community of Georgetown, Ontario. Awesome. And, and uh, you, you met with us today in, in, in Stony Creek to do a podcast, so we're, we are quite, quite grateful. So, Nadia, you are on Twitter. You can be um, followed at Doc, so D-O-C-S-C-H-M-A-D-I-A. So that's Dr. Say it for me, is Dr. Shmadia? Yes, and it's you, and, uh, at Doc Shmadia. And, and, and your, your sort of analogy for that was Joe Schmo, Nadia Shmadia, right? <laughs> yes. There. So it, it shows the honest and sincere side of you too, I think, which is good, Nadia. So my, my, my first question for you, Nadia, is that, and as we get into this stuff, and this is going to be a little bit of a special podcast because you've been quite, quite involved and, and you've led with others like uh, Dr. Uh, Colvinder Gill, who's yes. been also instrumental in, in all the success that we've had as doctors behind the scene. And we can sort of quali- uh, qualify and quantify that success. We'll put that in quotes for now. Um, did, did you really expect all of this? Like when you, when you first got involved with S- Dr. Sil- Silvana Bolano and, and the Facebook group and the amount of attention and fame and the, the, the amount of um, press conferences and radio shows or all interviews that you've done, have you, have you really expected this much attention? Not at all. Not at all. To be honest, for me, 2015 was going to be the year of having my baby and going back to work and taking care of my family and paying down debt, doing all of the normal stuff that people expect to do during the year. I did not expect to step into the political arena. I did not expect to have to draw on my scrappy side and start fighting for physicians' professional rights. I did not expect to become somewhat known and recognizable. It was never an intention. And it's funny, a couple of days ago, Dr. Kilvinder Gill and I were chatting on the phone and and Kilvinder and I were laughing because neither of us set out to become leaders. It just so happens that we tend to be outspoken and we tend to be, I guess, good at engaging people and drawing others out and using their talents towards what's become a fight for, I think, physician survival, right? The profession's survival. I, I, I agree with you. And I, I, want, I actually want to just take a moment to commend both yourself and Colvinder and, and of course, everyone else that's been involved. But I, I've had the pleasure of working with you guys in, in mm-hmm. several different areas. And, and we were at Queen's Park in November and I was very impressed with the amount of leadership. And one, one of the, the nice sayings that I've heard, one of the nice virtues attributed to a good leader is that they make others around them feel safe, right? And I, I think you and Colvinder have done that. And, and you've done it extraordinarily well, especially overlooking. I'm not sure you're overlooking, but you're, you're leading and you're engaging, as you say, 
thousands of doctors and and doing it in a, in, in a very cordial way, you know, like a, a way in which others actually feel safe and they want to put a lot forward. And I think you don't have to look any further from that Facebook group to actually see that. Do you agree? I think so. It feels uh, <laughs> it feels very strange to be agreeing and saying, yes, I'm amazing. <laughs> but I think what the bigger thing has been is that we've tried to create a space where People do feel safe, like you said, and people feel supported. I think physicians make natural advocates. They do it every day in their offices with their patients and for their patients. Um, I think what we tried to do was to give them tools and help them come up with tools and ways and means of using that natural talent and putting it towards this particular cause. Mm -hmm. So let, let's let's get to that for a moment because we have and, and this has been uh, described several times, but we have the Facebook group. It's called the Concerned Ontario Doctors. We have the Care Not Cuts website. We have the Facebook page. We are your Ontario doctors for the public. I, I've had a lot of people ask me, so family, friends, and also some patients. They're they're curious about what goes on behind the scenes. So what what types of of private discussions are we having with the administration of the group or with the the, uh, maybe I should call it the pseudo-executive of the group because it's not formally appointed. What types of things happen that you can describe so that other people really get, get an appreciation of what's going on behind the scenes that they wouldn't see otherwise? So you're right. Um, we have our, our public face, which is composed of the Care Not Cuts website and then the Facebook page, We Are Your Ontario Doctors, where the public can write in and interact with physicians about this particular issue. The, the private discussion forum on Facebook, the Concerned Ontario Doctors, um, there's nothing, uh, I would say, overly... Uh, actually, I should correct that. There's nothing um, nefarious going on on that discussion website. It's basically a space where physicians can post articles, can post questions to one another um, that transcends time, space, um, and the various boundaries that we have within our actual profession. It, it transcends the family doctor specialist dynamic. It, it's basically speaking on a one-on-one -on -one level where we talk about what fears we have about the government's actions. We talk about ideas we have to deal with this. We, we get a chance to practice what we would say to our patients, what we'd say to one another to try and, and wake up more physicians to what's going on and wake up more patients to what's going on. I, I, and conveniently so, I think we can appropriately apply uh, the word serendipity. Because I, I think I think in a very large way this is serendipitous. And I can vouch because I'm in this this Facebook group and I'm quite active. And it, 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 through this adversity that we're facing, we've had an opportunity to come together. And I find it amazing how, how many people are putting forth ideas, whether they're, they're very bright or they're not, I'm not sure um, antagonistic is the right word, but they, they're, they're pushing the envelope or they're pushing boundaries. The discussion that gets created, the support to see where we are with one another right across the province, I think it's fantastic. It's, it's, it's very, very productive. And the other thing that you see a lot of is the sincerity in the individuals we're working with, these, these other physicians. So 
Now, you say there's nothing, nothing uh, you know, particularly incriminating or, or <laughs> cy- cynical or sinister in, in this group. We've had suspicions and perhaps even confirmation that although this is a private group for doctors, that there are moles, there are spies from, from the ministry and from others that, that creep our group and they come in and they try to pick apart the information that we have and leak it to uh, politicians. Any truth to that? To be honest, I, I don't know. And I don't think that there is any way to know. And the approach to the paranoia, I guess you can either hunt down every physician member, ask them about their ties to the ministry, and ask them about their loyalties, or you can trust in the, like you said, in the general sincerity of the group. My choice is to trust in the general sincerity. There is nothing very secretive about the group itself. There are no discussions that are happening on there that patients, physicians, the ministry, um, allied health workers, everybody, there are no discussions happening there that are contradictory to our genuine desire to just, just be good doctors to provide best care which appeals to the the genuine motivation and ambition of of our group right it's honest there's 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 no tricks right so as we move forward a little bit you know we're we're ending in 2015 there's only a, a day or so left and what's what's going to happen in 2016 there's there's talk about the charter challenge there's talk about litigation there's there's still no physician service agreement in place. There's all this talk about the lens. What are the next big steps for the next year or so? Next few months and year? So as far as concerned Ontario doctors goes, I think the group, since its inception back in September 14th, um, the group has moved this way and that and has found its voice, which is basically that of a physician as advocate, an advocate for their patients, advocates for themselves, advocates for a better healthcare system that's more responsive to what the public actually needs and wants. Um, I think what you'll see from that group, you'll see a more concerted effort, a more um, organized message that we're going to try and deliver and continue to deliver to the public at large. In terms of what's going on on a broader scale, we know that there are changes coming from the top down, from the ministry, down to the lens, down to, that are going to be filtered down to physicians and and everybody there. It's hard to comment on that because a lot of those changes come as just as much of a surprise to you and I as to the public and as to the lens. The system is destabilized because of that. With the breakdown of negotiations and the physician services agreement, um, or the negotiations towards a physician services agreement, there's been a massive breakdown in communication as well. Mm -hmm. It feels as though, even though the the ministry has very pretty words about communicating and wanting to communicate with their quote-unquote outstanding physicians, there is no communication actually happening between the various groups, and that truly is a shame. It makes it very difficult because the the government is acting in isolation. The LINs are are struggling to keep up with the mandates that are being handed out down to them. And physicians are are struggling to 
respond to what's coming down the line, to each surprise that they wake up to. So if, if, I'm, if I'm a Lynn, if I am the, 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 the <laughs> Hamilton, Holt, and Niagara brand Lynn, and I know that I have a certain mandate now and I have to push forward and the, the Ministry of Health is asking me to do something, to enforce the principles with the price report, etc. I'm not happy. I'm not happy with the, the, the Liberal government because I am dealing with a group of physicians that's being mistreated. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, all the rhetoric aside and, and the political spin, it, it's obvious. It's very obvious that it, the physicians are not being um, treated properly. So if I'm the Lynn, I'm not naive to this. I see it. If I'm the Lynn, what am I going to do now? What are, what are, what are they doing behind the closed doors at the Lynn's? What do you think? That's a great question. Um, if I had to guess, I think they're struggling to figure out how to walk the fine line between their boss, the ministry, and the people they're supposed to corral and manage. Um, they've been given, they're standing in a position where they've been given a mandate by the government to improve primary care, improve health care in general. Um, at the same time, they know that they can't do it without the input of frontline workers, right? Not just patients, not just staff, but physicians as well. They know that the the doctor-patient relationship is sacrosanct. And if physicians are, are frustrated by their own boss, the government, they're not going to be willing to... It's just not a great space to brainstorm reform ideas. I, so I am, I am, I agree with you and mm-hmm. I, I'm sympathetic to that. So I understand that, that they're probably going through that. <laughs> I, I've been criticized for this view. I've been criticized that I, I'm a bit of an optimist and would rather move forward with a Lynn, acknowledging that there's probably some discord on their end as well with the ministry. But at the same time, I, re- I recognize that if there's going to be reform, it would be optimal to have us involved. No way, th- th- no doubt, pardon me, no mm-hmm. doubt is optimal to have us involved. Um, I've been criticized for this view. Others have said that no, absolutely not. There should be a clear physician services agreement mm-hmm. in place. Um, th- this, is, this is more political spin. And, I, you know, I, I don't necessarily completely disagree with that. I, I think there's merit there. So I struggle to find the balance between the two. Do we completely ignore the Lynn and say, and the Lynn and, and, and their mandates and their initiatives and say, no, too bad, we're not doing any of the primary care reform that you suggest um, because we want a PSA in place? Or do we say, you know what, we, we get it. Let's come together, let's work, let's actually make this place a better healthcare system. Do you, do you, do you strike a balance in between? What are your thoughts? It's hard to say. Again, it's... I agree with you. I'm, I'm kind of sympathetic to both sides. I can see why people don't want to go forward without a physician services agreement. I mean, it's kind of like having Damocles' sword hanging over you, right? You, you don't know where your paycheck's going to come from. You don't know how much is going to be in there. Physicians, as they have said often, are small business owners and are expected to act like small business owners. They still have the infrastructure of an office and staff that they have to support so that they can provide care to their patients. When you have an uncertainty in terms of, or this much uncertainty in terms of what, how you're going to provide for 
not just your your family and your loved ones, but also for this practice that you've spent time and money and effort loving and nurturing, it makes it very difficult to, again, brainstorm and comply with any reform measures. Mm-hmm. So I can see why people, some doctors and many doctors, actually, I would say, are resistant to working with the lens. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I can see, and the Lynn executives that I've spoken to, they, they too are struggling. They're struggling because they're being forced into the role of middlemen between yes. the government and the physician groups. Um, it's unclear how much power the government is going to give the Lynn's, and it would be interesting to see what, how they use that power. Right? They, they are being upsized, in terms of not just the, the level of bureaucracy, but the, their reach and their ability to actually um, shape and change and evaluate the care that's being given on a local level. Mm-hmm. But it, it's really tough. Yes. And I, if I go back and forth every day, some days I wake up and I think, no, no, we have to get our foot in the door. This is the time when ideas are being generated. This is the time when when we're just on the ground floor of creating reform and creating a system that's amazing and responsive to patients mm-hmm. um, and to the person who finds themselves in the vulnerability of, being an, Ill- of an illness. Mm-hmm. And then there are other days when I wake up and say, oh my gosh, how do you, how do you address primary care reform when there's this massive power imbalance mm-hmm. between physicians, between all the stakeholders, mm-hmm. right? Between patients, physicians, and the government. Mm-hmm. How, how do you properly engage? My, my sense is that the, the, liberal gov- the liberal government and Eric Hoskins are, gonna, are, are right now, they're sitting in office saying, you know what? Throw it to the lens. We're putting funding there. This is their responsibility. They have to make it happen. Let's see what happens. If physicians buy in, they say, wow, this is working really well, then we'll move with it. If physicians say, you know what? The hell with this. We're not doing this. We're not moving forward. Then we'll play it by ear and we'll see what happens, right? I, I, I wonder I wonder if that's correct or not, and you make valid points. The, the big sort of implementation and talk is about the Price Report, the Price-Baker okay. Report. Um, I do know David Price. I actually have a lot of respect for David Price. I, I really enjoy interactions with him, and, and I think quite highly of him. And I know you've interacted with him as well, maybe to a, a lesser extent, but uh, you have interacted with him. The price report start, starts to allude to things like geographic-based care so that physicians within a certain area will provide care and patients will have access to physicians within their area, right? There's, there's some talk about what's going to happen to things like walking clinics. There's some, I think, more subtle insinuation about patient accountability. I've spoken about patient accountability multiple times now. And the main message that I'm trying to get out because I've, again, been somewhat criticized and somewhat praised for my views is that uh, this is not punitive. We're not punishing patients. We're, we're working with patients. These are, these are not pejorative comments. These are saying, okay, we need to make this system work. All the stakeholders need to be engaged. And this is what we're going to do, including the patients. What are your thoughts on patient accountability? That's a hot topic there, Jason. (laughs) Um, I think for me, what I've found in my own practice, and again, this is a very small sample size. This is not a true research. This is not, um, 
uh, well-studied randomized control trial on which I'm basing my opinions. This is just personal experience. I have a part-time family medicine practice that is balanced by a part-time anesthesia practice. So I do work full-time. What it means for my patients, um, who number approximately 500 to 600, is what do they do for access to care on, on the days that I'm not there? And during the meet and greet that I have with each of the patients that I've rostered, we talk about what my role is on the days that I'm not there, what their role is, and what their options are for accessing help. Um, We lay down the ground rules of our relationship. And then as we develop that relationship, we we navigate and figure out what the patients are comfortable with and what they actually expect from, from me and my team in terms of providing their healthcare. I'm lucky. I'm part of a family health organization and a family health team. So I've got not just other physicians working in my group. I've got nurses and nurse practitioners. So my patients do get a chance to uh, interact with, with other, within a team-based model, which is an ideal scenario for them because it means physicians like me who aren't there every day can still give my patients good care. What I found is I tend to stay away from the idea of patient accountability because, again, the idea of accountability, while it's appealing to me, has taken on, like you've said, a very pejorative tone, right? It's taken on a very punishing tone, in fact. If you're not accountable, then you're a miscreant of some sort. And, and that's a shame. For me, it's about patient education, right? We talk a lot about, and I spend a fair amount of time with patients about what kinds of things, what kind of illnesses run their course, what kind of illnesses require intervention, what kind of, um, what are the, what are the limits and the strengths of the medical profession? Because again, we, we can't do everything for them. They are expected to hold up their end of the deal. And one of the things that I generally say to my patients is, if you work as hard as I do to maintain your health, I'm sure we can get through this together. So, and I find they're very responsive to that. So they become accountable because I'm telling them that I'm going to be accountable to them. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a very welcoming and perhaps a gentler way of doing it than what I think the government's trying to do. And, and you're, you're also speaking to empowerment, yes. which is actually... Uh, very powerful, and I, I so there's a couple of things here. One, I think what you're doing would actually work, and perhaps it actually does work in your practice. Anecdotally speaking, I share that experience, and it's very different when you sit somebody down and say, "Listen, if your child gets sick, this is what you can expect." So even in the future, if this happens, and you give them some advice, and this is when you need to go to emergency, but mm-hmm. that's the education. Yeah, that's effective. Where it breaks down is when either patients don't listen or don't want to listen, or physicians aren't actually doing this or give lesser advice or, or inappropriate advice, or when the ministry is not providing ample services and coverage and funding to the, the services that they actually need, right? So what, what you're speaking to is happening. These are not things that are unrealistic. Educating a patient, empowering a patient, and engaging them in that dialogue it is actually quite fruitful. That's exactly what I mean when I appeal to patient accountability as a principle. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, it, it gets spun in, in a ton of different ways, but you, you make a very, you can make, one can make a very powerful patient ally. Mm-hmm. They, they really can understand how the system works. And I, I have discussions all the time. I even did a podcast on this, the, the sort of philosophical interpretation of what screening actually means and patients understanding what over-testing is and, and false positivity rates and, and that sort of thing. So they, they get it, right? But without those sort of discussions, without that sort of engagement, we're not going to end up going in that direction, right? Totally agreed, Jason. Now, like you've said, it's a process. It's going to take time. I've had patients where I've had this discussion several times and they still don't get it. That doesn't mean that I stop having these discussions because my hope is eventually it will sink in. Mm -hmm. But I think you're absolutely right that we have to arm patients with some of the knowledge that we have. We we have to. Otherwise, if medicine remains uh, under the full expertise of the physician without giving the patients a chance to become experts in their own health care, it'll mean that all of the responsibility for the patient rests on the physician, and that's impossible. It's an impossible endeavor Mm -hmm. to take on the burden of being completely accountable for everything a patient does. Mm -hmm. The patients have to be able to, to take the knowledge that they learn and the skills that they learn and apply it to themselves and grow from that. And I, I, I've seen that in my practice, so I know it's possible. It may not work for everybody, but it's certainly something worthwhile. And certainly from the patients that I've asked, they like doing it that way. Yeah. They like being given information and, and processing that information and having that back and forth. Yeah. And, and th- this is where initiatives like choosing wisely yeah. and... I, I, I don't mean to be critical of Health Quality Ontario and Joshua Tepper, but, but <laughs> these are the these are the things that really should be targeted. Yeah. You know, how is it? How do we best engage our patients? How do we best uh, utilize the system? And and you know, for C tests four and five in the emergency, yeah, patients shouldn't be there. And in fact, being in a hospital is actually not a safe thing for all the mm-hmm. reasons, the, the infection rates and that sort of thing. So these are the things we need to start attacking and and really really get a good hold of and move forward with. Now, I, I, I've, had, I've had several friends and colleagues, some in the community, but mo- most, most in either an academic or hospital-based environment that are saying to me, oh, are you guys still doing all of this? I think it's just going to pass. And, you know, I, I, I see this, perhaps the correct word is apathy, but this, this complete lack of engagement and interest. I hear other rumors too, and I think this is somewhat true, that that there is higher powers within the hospital administration telling or asking doctors not to be mm. a part of any grassroots organization and not to engage the, the provincial government in, in any sort of discussion. Do you think there's truth to that? And, and, and if so, I mean, what, what would you say to that sort of dialogue? As far as the potential muzzling that's happening of physician advocates within on hospital grounds, I think that is true. And I think there is a history behind it. Um, I know that physicians faced a similar sort of fight back in the 1980s and the early 90s with the government. And what I've heard from anecdotal experience, again, um, is that one of the fallouts of that fight was that the physicians who spoke up 
their hospitals were punished. Um, and, and it happened in a very insidious kind of way. The funding that the hospital needs to operate and to, to provide services to their communities, that funding comes from the ministry. And it's, it's through various checks and balances and various forms and applications and, and various routes that that funding comes down. With the physicians who spoke out and with the hospitals that were affiliated with those physicians, what they found was that some of that funding was jeopardized. And, and it wasn't the ministry saying outright, well, because you spoke up against us, we're not giving you the funding. It was done, like I said, in a very insidious way. There were delays. All of a sudden, the paperwork was forgotten, or it just sort of languished on somebody's desk, and the hospital didn't receive their funding. They struggled. And I think that's partly behind this muzzling of physicians. I also think part of it is that many hospital CEOs and, and many staff, even among physicians, um, have friends in the ministry. How do you, this war, this fight between physicians and the ministry has become increasingly bitter and it continues to become angrier and, uh, and more volatile day by day. How do you interact with your friend in the ministry on a social level when on a professional level you're this angry at them? And so I think part of the muzzling comes from that, from those ties between the two groups. And I, I agree. I think that very, very well said. This is a, this relates to a question that I asked in our, our face, our private Facebook group. I said, you know, if, if a doctor behaves in such a way, the CPSO, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario, are there as a governing body to oversee this and to make sure that all these checks and balances are in place. When the ministry does things like this, though, there is no such body. And that's why, I mean, I posted the question, the CPSO is to medical doctors as the blank is to MPPs or the provincial government. Yeah. The, the, and, and I ask it with tongue-in-cheek, but the, the truth is that there's no the blank can't be filled, is there? Some no. people say police and some people say voters. But it, it creates a you know, an irresponsible system where, you know, people or, or, or politicians can kind of do whatever they, they want as long as they're trying to win their votes and not doing, I don't, the word unethical doesn't apply, but, but, but criminal, as long as mm-hmm. they're not doing anything criminal. Because a lot of the stuff that they do end up doing in, in certain eyes can actually be seen as quite unethical, right? So I, I think there's, there's a layer of policing there that's absent. Absolutely. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. And part of that, I think, is why there was that, I think it was an article in the Huffington Post recently where they, they polled a bunch of people and they found that politicians rated almost the lowest at the bottom of the scale mm-hmm. in terms of trustworthiness. Mm-hmm. And part of that is that there's this perception among not just physicians, but among everybody that politicians aren't held accountable unless it's the end of the election cycle and they're looking for votes. And then all of a sudden they become very accountable. Mm-hmm. and very responsive to the, their constituents. It's a shame, really. How, how, what kind of a world is it that um, you can't trust your own leader? Yeah. I mean, politics prior to all of this, prior to 2015, played a very peripheral role in my life. I, I voted, but, and, but I, I didn't really think about it on a day-to-day level. And now I've been finding myself considering it even more. And I've 
I found that common themes are emerging from the discussions happening on the forum, the discussions happening on letters to the editors, among MPP meetings, all of that. And those themes are of disillusionment and of despair and of a, a distrust, a distrust in the people who are managing your hard-earned tax dollars and a distrust in their motives and agenda. Mm-hmm. On my podcast with when I, when I hosted Dr. Scott Wooder, who's one of the past OMA presidents, he said, and, and, and this really, I hadn't really thought of it like this, but he said, he, he made a comment about uh, something that we're doing with the provincial government and Dr. Eric Hoskins, and he says, I, he said, I hope Eric Hoskins has the best intentions in mind of our healthcare system, and to think otherwise scares me. Yeah. And and it's and it's yeah. true. If if you think for a second, maybe he really doesn't care. If you just entertain that thought, I mean that's that's a pretty daunting thought. I hope I really hope he does care. That that he's looking for the best for our patients and for the sustainability for, of our healthcare system. And sometimes, you know, I, I can't help but question that, right? And I think which is mm-hmm. natural, but also for the the reasons that you're saying. I think he does care. But I worry about what he prioritizes over this. Because my sense is from his actions, not from his words, because his words, like I said, are very pretty. He talks about our amazing healthcare system. He talks about being patient-centered. And he talks about fulfilling patient needs and the outstanding care Ontario's physicians provide. But his actions have shown that he values almost everything else over healthcare. And that's partly because... Despite his reform attempts, those reform attempts are coming out of board meetings and discussions among politicians. They're not coming up from the the grassroots level. They're not coming out of patient surveys. They're not coming out of physician surveys. They're not coming out of nursing surveys, right? He's taking a very top-down approach to reform and to managing the healthcare system and the budget. It's basically do it my way or take the highway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's unfortunate because then that doesn't leave room for discussion. And what you've seen from our forum is when you have open discussion between people who perceive each other as equals, you can generate amazing productivity, Mm -hmm. inspiring, truly. Mm -hmm. And it's a shame that he doesn't have that. Yeah. And and there really has been a lack of physician engagement. Yes. There, there really has been a lack of physician engagement from that top down and, and seeing what we're thinking and what we want. Mm-hmm. And, and, that's what it's, and it brings me to my next point is about the OMA, the Ontario Medical Association. You are now involved? Yes, I'm one of the council members now. And uh, so is Dr. Colvinder Gill. Yes. Amongst others, like uh, Darren Cargill. And there's a, there's a bunch of others mm-hmm. that are, are involved as well. Um, What's the old, okay, besides this charter challenge, right? Which, which you know, the, the ongoing joke is that sounds great. Let me know how it goes in 2025 <laughs> when, it, when it's complete. So besides this charter challenge, what, what is the OMA doing? Or what, what's the plan for the OMA in the next 12 months or so? What do, you, what do you predict? What do you think? So I am a new council member. I am not privy to what happens behind the board meeting doors. And from what I understand, the way the OMA structured... Physicians at large speak to their council representatives who feed information up to the board level. The board level digest the board the board members digest this information and then they come up with various options for physician members to follow. And the idea is that 
the physicians get to choose which of those options they follow. Um, I think the Ome is in a, in a tough place, given what's going on. They've found themselves in a fight, not just for the profession's survival, but their own survival. Sean Watley, Dr. Sean Watley, who, who is an Ome board member, but who, who also writes an amazing blog where he, he looks at, at governance and politics and, and the physician's role, all of that. He wrote an article at one point during the summer where he, he asked, how is the OMA going to maintain relevancy among its physician constituents? The OMA started off being a voice for physicians. A lot of physicians have worried that the OMA stayed largely silent during this fight. I've noticed that in the last few months that's changed. They're trying harder, they're trying to be more transparent, more communicative, not just with their own members, but with the media. That said, the OMA is bound up with all sorts of governance rules. The letters they put out, not just to their own members, but to the public, are, are heavily edited and have to go through various checks and balances again and again and again. And so the responses are slow at best. And I don't think that can change until you tidy up the governance. But how do you go about doing that? It, it seems almost, it, it's a Byzantine organization. And, and it's similar to the ministry in that way. Mm -hmm. I think the true power comes from the grassroots physicians who have the freedom to go out and talk as long as you give them the information. I think the OMA is trying to do that. They've been trying to give them petitions and buttons and, and speaking points I think they can do better, though. I think they honestly can. I agree with you. I, I think, you know, to, to, to expect a, a fast response, quick response, something witty, powerful from such a large mm -hmm. sort of political administrative body is, is, is a little, it's almost unreasonable. And, and, and to try and really optimize it so it's possible is almost futile because, because of the degree and complexity of the, the governance. I mean, you, you mentioned Sean Whiteley, and, and there's been other uh, individuals at, at the OMA who are just fantastic doctors and mm -hmm. great. If you read, as you say, you read Sean, Sean's blog. I mean, when I first met this fellow and I, I'm reading this, I thought, this guy's brilliant. Holy moly, these are good ideas. Mm -hmm. I told Sean, I said, you should, you should be the next uh, health minister, right? <laughs> then the difficulty comes into that government and, governance and, and how that sort of translates to action, right? And, and then yeah. there's, a, there's, a, there's a bit, there's a bit, there's a huge lull or delay. And as a result, the, the grassroots efforts are, are much quicker and, and at, at, by virtue of that, potentially much more effective in battles like this, if I can say so. I know that various OMA members who've, who've worked their way up through the ranks and into the board, they've said, you know, I, Nadia, I, I sounded a lot like you when I was outside of the OMA, calling for more action, for swifter responses, for, for more relevant and more timely responses, not just timely responses, but more relevant responses. Um, but once I got into the organization, I understood. I understood why it took so long and and all of that. I don't have any plans to work my way up the ranks, but I have to wonder, why should an organization that started off as being a voice for physicians, why does it have to be bogged down by the very bureaucracy we're criticizing from the ministry? Like, why does that have to happen? 
I don't understand. I really don't. It's a good question, and and um, great thoughts too, especially for the for the next year and what's happening. And as we round off, I mean, this is this is a bit of a a New Year's special. So this is a very common sort of practice in, in sports podcasts and, and shows. <laughs> so this is this is what I would like to do. We're going to do a little bit of rapid fire with you, right? Um, for each response, you're only allowed a few seconds to speak. Okay. So you can't elaborate too much. Yeah. And just answer the questions honestly. If you find that the question's a bit offside, just say, you know, no response or no comment. I, I don't want to put you on the spot. All right. So there's, there's going to be a series of questions here. And so, again, this is a New Year sort of theme. So we're looking at uh, 2016. Um, Concerned Ontario Doctors, the Facebook group, is it going to grow and become very powerful or is it going to deteriorate and dwindle? I think it's going to grow. I think it's going to become a powerful organization for advocacy. I think you're going to see that they're going to have voices at the various tables, at the various levels. We're building those connections now, and and I think the group's going to continue building because the physicians love it. They love that they get a chance to say something and they get to add to the conversation. There there is a component of fun in all of this, too. I, I actually do agree with that. Eric Hoskins, health minister for the Liberal Party, MPP, um, by the end of 2016, 365 days from now, is he still going to be the health minister in Ontario? I seriously doubt it. Yeah. I think he's a puppet. And I think he is. Uh, he used to be a sympathetic face. I think largely people are realizing that he's, he's not a powerful face. And he's looking more and more desperate in his pictures in recent days. Mm-hmm. The Charter Challenge, will it be completed by 2025? <laughs> My sister is a lawyer, um, and, and she told me that these things take a long time. It's an important fight, and we have to continue it, but it's going to take a long time. So 2025, 10 years. Yes? No? At least. At least. Funding from the, from the liberal government or the provincial government uh, in 2016, are we going to see cuts or are we going to see a little bit of return of funding because the Liberals realize that what they're doing is probably not good? I don't think the Liberals realize that they're doing anything wrong at all. I think they're firmly convinced of their own truth and their own perspective. So I think it's going to be cuts. I think it's going to be more cuts, more balancing the budgets. And until, I'm sad to say, until somebody gets harmed, I don't think they're going to open their eyes to this side of the discussion. That is usually what happens, though, eh? Some, something bad has to happen. You say, ah, perhaps what we're doing is actually not good. The Lins, 2016, are they actually going to have power and play an effective role or nah, not really? I think they're going to be given power. Um, I think they're going to be expected to act as generals, but they're going to find themselves as generals of an army without any soldiers. Um, this is not so much 2016 per se, but the next provincial election. Will the Liberals still be in power, even though last election everyone thought after all the scandals perhaps they wouldn't? Or are we going to see someone like Patrick Brown and the, the PC party or NDP and Andrew Horvath actually take power? What do you think? Liberals, NDP, or PC? I think the scandals are catching up to the Liberals. 
I think Patrick Brown is is a very engaging figure. He's a very charming figure. He's honestly seems to be trying to get, and again, honestly said with a bit of tongue in cheek, right? Because he is at heart a politician. He seems to be getting out into the communities. He seems to be talking to Joe Schmo on the street. However, so I think he has a good chance of getting in. Um, Choose which one, PC, Liberals, NDP? PC. The NDPs have not had a chance to live down their run at the physicians back in the 1990s. Mm. I think they're going to become second rung and Liberals are going to drop to third rung. They're the lowest in the polls right now, the Liberals, I believe. eh? Yeah. Um, Okay, my last question. Um, We are ending off 2015. We're looking at 2016. Is 2016 going to be a more successful year for Ontario doctors? And I leave the word successful open to interpretation to you. I think financially, it's going to be a rough year. The the economy's in a recession. Um, the government has loads of debt. Ontario has a terrible credit rating. Um, I think financially, Ontario's physicians are going to suffer this year. I think personally, Ontario's physicians are going to rise to the challenge. And they're going to find that they have more power in unexpected ways. They're, they're going to find opportunity to where they don't see it right now. They're going to step out of the despair and come out of it and, and realize that they have powerful allies in the form of their patients, in the form of their family, their friends, their loved ones. And I think if they build on that relationship that they have, that's the core of medicine, if they build on that relationship, I honestly think that Ontario's physicians are going to find that they become instrumental in shaping healthcare for the years to come. Awesome. So I, I really want to thank you, Nadia. You, you've done an excellent job, well, not only on this podcast, but just in general in 2015 as a physician, as a mother, perhaps <laughs> the most important role of all. And, you know, I have, I have a funny feeling in 20, 30 years, we're going to be looking back at the year 2015 and say, wow. What a, what a fight that was and, and the, the perseverance and, and the skill and the, and the politics and what the, the actual doctors endured, that was impressive. So I, I, I think all this work is absolutely going to a great cause and, and I really commend you and it's been an absolute pleasure doing the podcast and, and working alongside you and, and uh, Colvinder as well. So on that note, I, uh, I will say goodbye and we will end here and we will do some more podcasts in the coming weeks. Did you want to say goodbye in any last words? Um, I'd like to say thank you, Jason. Thank you for all of the work you've done, for the amazing discussions you've generated, for, for the work you've done in advocating for your patients, for a better system, and for your fellow physicians. Um, thank you for having me. And I, I think with people like you on our side who are, who are working with physicians to, to make them more, to empower them, there's no way we're going to lose this fight. There's just no way. Thank you, Nadia, and to everybody, have a wonderful new year and enjoy the podcast.